Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, I'm Mario Sakura here with my good friends and co-hosts, TJ Daw and TJ Ingracia. Guys, how you doing today? Pretty good. Not bad at all. Looking forward to talking about Captain America. That's right. Today we are continuing with our series of conversations on the Marvel movies, and we're going to be talking about specifically Captain America, the first Avenger, and Captain America, Civil War. Two movies about, yes, Captain America. And uh, so we have a lot to say on this. Um, and uh, so I think we'll just get right into it. Uh, I've been enjoying rewatching these Marvel movies, I have to say, some more than others. Uh, and we'll get into that, my opinions about both of these movies as we go. And I'm interested in hearing yours. Uh, but let's get right into the synopsis. We're going to start with Captain America, the first Avenger. TJ Daw, tell us about that movie. Captain America, the first Avenger was released in 2011. It was directed by Joe Johnston, who famously did some of the special effects on Raiders of the Lost Ark and the original Star Wars trilogy before becoming a director in his own right. So the story is, and a good portion of this follows the canon origin story of Captain America in Marvel Comics. It's 1942 and Brooklynite Steve Rogers, played by Chris Evans, is short, skinny, and has a host of medical conditions and wants nothing more than to enlist and fight in World War II and he's repeatedly declared physically unfit, but he just keeps on trying. And his persistence is noticed by German emigre scientist Dr. Abraham Erskine, played by Stanley Tucci, who brings Rogers in as a subject for his super soldier serum, which he had tried an earlier version of while he was still living in Germany on Johann Schmidt, played by Hugo Weaving, who's the head of the Nazis' research division Hydra. And the serum gave Schmidt increased strength and agility, but it accentuated his megalomania and drove him insane, as well as turning his head into a bright red skull. Steve Rogers undergoes this experimental treatment, which is successful, turning him fantastically muscular, as well as taller, strangely enough, and faster and more coordinated, and he immediately puts these new abilities to use, pursuing a Hydra agent who had assassinated Dr. Erskine. This Hydra agent kills himself when he's captured, declaring his eternal allegiance to Hydra. So Steve Rogers wants to pursue the Red Skull, who has retrieved a glowing blue cube with an ancient mystical origin which will come to be known in future Marvel movies as the Tesseract. And the Red Skull has used this to power a series of weapons designed by his subordinate Dr. Zola, played by Toby Jones. Instead, Rogers, now christened Captain America, is made to tour the country putting on shows helping sell war bonds. While he's in Italy, Rogers learns that most of the regiment he'd been performing for had been captured the day before and there are no plans to rescue the 150 missing soldiers. So in defiance of his superior, Colonel Phillips, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and with the aid of Agent Peggy Carter, Haley Atwell, and Howard Stark, played by Dominic Cooper, they provide him with a round shield made of vibranium, and he goes behind enemy lines, frees the regiment, as well as his best friend Bucky, played by Sebastian Stan. And he has his first dust-up with the Red Skull, who destroys his own base before flying off. Captain America then goes on a series of missions with a chosen group of commandos, eventually attacking the Red Skull's fortress in the Alps. The Red Skull takes off in a plane, which Rogers manages to catch up to and board. The two of them fight. 
The Tesseract gets knocked loose. Red, Red Skull holds it aloft. It disintegrates his body, sending particles of him off into space. Rogers is now alone in the plane, and he sees that it's set to bomb New York City, and he concludes that the only chance to spare the lives of millions is to crash it into the ice, which he does. The wreckage is found 70 years later, and Rogers, who had survived but been frozen, is revived, and Nick Fury tells him about the Avengers. Great. Thank you, TJ. So it was interesting to me watching this, how this movie does set up a lot of what is to come in the um, future Avengers movies. I was also intrigued as I was watching this movie, you know, referring to Captain America as the first Avenger. I thought, you know what, let me look up the definition of Avenger, right, to know exactly what it is that we're talking about. And it's about uh, exacting punishment on someone who has done wrong. It's about evening the scales. Now, it's not quite revenge, although sometimes it gets used as a synonym with revenge, but it is more about exacting justice in defense of another rather than getting revenge for something done unto oneself, right? So it was just interesting to me about how that kind of sets us up. I think we've already talked about Captain America and his Enneagram type, right? If anybody's been watching these, so it's no secret that we think he is a type one. And we're going to be talking a lot about that today. But it was just interesting to me to contrast that with what we might see in a more eightish character, right? Uh, very often when it's eights, they're protecting other people or they are getting revenge on things done wrong to them, whereas the Avengers are, you know, uh, seeking justice in a more clear way. Uh, TJ and Gracia, I'm curious about your uh, response to this movie. How did you like the movie and what was your reaction to it? Well, I want to be Steve Rogers when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a one, what's not to love? <laughs> There's so many great one scenes. He's not as conflicted, I guess. I mean, there are certain things, especially we'll talk about in Civil War, the next film, where there's a lot more sort of internal conflict. Uh, he's just sort of like almost annoyingly the good guy. And I, I think there can be this thing where ones can set, we can set ourselves up as like the good guy. We know what's right and wrong or trying to do the right thing. But certainly there's many admirable qualities in in Steve Rogers, specifically the scene uh, when he's undergoing basic training before he's taken the serum. And uh, the Tommy Lee Jones character, help me out, TJ, what's the general's name? Colonel Phillips. He's trying to prove a point that it takes guts to win a war. And he throws this dummy grenade into the crowd of guys. And the big strong guy that he wants to be the one to take the serum He's frightened and runs away. Steve Rogers jumps on the grenade and yells for everybody to get back. And I know it's a little corny, but I mean, I, I legitimately get choked up every time I watch that scene <laughs> because there is this thing of like, it's aspirational. You know, I hope that I'm the kind of person who would do that kind of thing. So uh, I have a very strong emotional connection to Steve Rogers. Uh, very similar. I am not a one. My mother is a one. My older sister is a one. I'm a four and four has that strong connection to one. So there was a lot that I related to and the grenade scene is a big one. And I found myself quite moved watching this movie. Unexpectedly so, because I remember liking it when it came out in the theater. I don't remember it hitting me in the heart the way it did watching it again in preparation for this. I just found him incredibly inspiring. And I loved him, really, and I can see why he's such a good example of 
how a healthy one is inspiring. They're the kind of leader that you would follow to the end of the earth. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I agree with everything you guys say. Now, regarding the movie itself, I um, I have to say I'm, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about the movie than you guys are, but not because of the character, right? I mean, I agree with you that it's hard not to admire Steve Rogers, right? Even before he becomes Captain America, right? And the reason that he becomes Captain America is because he's so admirable. And when we first see him, there's a very um, discomforting uh, digital effects way of making uh, Chris Evans seem like a puny little guy, right? And uh, it was funny because I was watching it with my wife, and when there's the scene where he's there with his shirt off being tested to see if he could pass the draft, she was saying, oh, that's disgusting. You know, tell me when it's over, right? Because she knows what Chris Evans really looks like. And to see this puny little, you know, distorted version was was disorienting. But he's got character and he's got spunk and he's got heart, right? Uh, the, you know, in the beginning, he's, you know, he stands up to a loud mouth in the movie theater and takes a whooping for it. And he says, I could take this all day. So, he, you know, and he's, continuously he, he keeps you know lying to try and get drafted so he or to, to get enlist to enlist so that uh, he can go to fight the bad guys and stop bullies as he puts it and what's interesting here to me right so type one you know i call striving to feel perfect okay so uh, you know and this perfectionism is what we always think about with ones doing the right thing etc but this is central to ones. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to feel like I have transgressed. I don't feel want to feel like I've let people down by doing the wrong thing. And that is certainly there in him. But what also struck me in this is how they can be misinterpreted as three-ish in some ways, right? I've heard people uh, identify this character as a three. Uh, I also saw a YouTube video where somebody claimed it was a type two because he wants to help people, right? So, uh, and that just goes to show you how superficial some of the understanding of the Enneagram are. But I'm curious from you guys, how is this character not a three or what's different from the three-ish aspects of uh, this character and a real three, for example? Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm just going through some of my notes on this. I hadn't thought to contrast him with a three because it never occurred to me that anybody might think he's a three. Some of the points that I brought up, I think, address this. One of them, he has a very straightforward approach. You know, he's not a strategist. He just dives into the action, goes head first and tackles it. And in no part of the movie is that more evident than when they're all deliberating, okay, what are we going to do? The Red Skull, it is his fortress in the Alps. We can't just knock on the door. And then Cap says, why not? That's exactly what we're going to do. And he charges straight forward. And there is strategy involved. He intentionally lets himself be captured, but he's constantly putting himself right into the throes of danger. Same with standing up to the bully. He doesn't have a chance. You know, a three might be more clever about that and figure out like, what's a way that I can gain an advantage? Whereas he just throws himself at him and gets the shit beat out of him. And he has no strategy other than to keep getting up and to not give up. And as you mentioned, his, his catchphrase, which doesn't appear in the comics as far as I know, but it becomes a catchphrase in the movies. I could do this all day. That's what he says when he's losing. That's his yeah. statement of defiance of, I will not give up. Right. Ones are willing to make great personal sacrifices. So kind of building on that. So he's perfectly fine with getting the shit beat out of him in service of something he believes in. 
Uh, the grenade is another example of that. In that moment, he genuinely believes he's sacrificing his life. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, when he's being given the super soldier serum, he starts screaming. And then you know everybody in charge says to shut it down. And he screams at them, no, don't. I can do this. Personal sacrifice comes up again and again and again, including the climax of the movie, when he realizes there's not going to be a safe landing. It's either me or it's millions of people in New York. There's no hesitation on his part at all. And he's not doing this for glory. He's doing it because it's right. Yeah, good. TJ and Gracia, any thoughts on those lines? Yeah, I agree with all that. I think the montage, after he gets the serum, he gets enlisted to basically go on a publicity tour to raise money, you know, war bonds. And he's very uncomfortable with this. I have a hard time seeing how a three would be that uncomfortable with the spotlight. You know, not that every three is seeking the spotlight and wanting the attention, but he's so uncomfortable with it. It's not just the attention he's uncomfortable with. He knows that this is not his true mission. He wants to be out in the field. And actually, there's a really interesting jump cut between him doing the shows in the States and then immediately cutting to him doing a show overseas for the troops. And the energy changes. The troops are not into it. They're not having it. And you can feel him feeling like he's sorry that he's up there doing this. Like he wants to be on the other side with them fighting with them. Yeah, I just I I think it's one all the way. I don't. Yeah, it's not within a thousand miles of a three. Yeah. So um, yeah, and and so I I certainly agree, right? And um, I I think the point that I want to make here is that not everybody who works hard and strives hard and is ambitious is a three, right? And that's what often happens. I see that with. Um, ones in organizations a lot, they're often very ambitious people, not because they're looking for praise or credit or a sense of identity, but out of responsibility. And this is not to malign the motives of threes for wanting to be ambitious. You know, it's just this drive they have. And it, it, you know, is, is often about getting their sense of identity satisfied, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I just want to make the point that ones often share some characteristics with the three, but it comes from a very different place, right? A very different need satisfaction. One minor thing to add to that is a repeated motif in this movie and in some of the other ones is Steve often describes himself as just a kid from Brooklyn. That's, you know, it's not about me. I'm not right. special. I'm not important. I'm not different from anyone else. I wasn't given a grand destiny. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. And he even says this in his final battle with the Red Skull. Uh, because the Red Skull, who my guess with him is three, transmitting three is what I saw in him, does see himself as a superior being and is really kind of, he gets his nose out of joint or his absent nose out of joint, I suppose, that Steve is right up and won't give up and won't back down and that the red skull really does see himself as this superior breed and this is the he is the future of mankind he has transcended the human species and in theory steve has too but he's not on board with that kind of definition i'm just a kid from brooklyn i'm doing my part 
there were a, a couple of interesting, very one-ish things, and we could go on all day about things that are one-ish about this movie. But we, you know, when he goes off to rescue Bucky and the other soldiers who have been held as prisoners of war, and when he comes back and he he says to the colonel, I'm, "I surrender myself for disciplinary action," <laughs> you, know? So, uh, you know, again, very one-ish sort of thing. He's not trying to rationalize what he did, justify. No, I made my choice. I, you know, I did what. You know, I, I, I know I broke the rules and I deserve to be punished for it. So I'm avenging, you know, against myself here for. You know. And right before he says that, he says some of these men need medical attention. Yes. Priority one, let's get these men help that they need. Priority two, I'm here to be punished. Punish me. I respect the hierarchy. I respect the rules. I know I broke them. I know you're my superior officer. One of these days we'll explore masochism and, uh, you know, Enneagram type one, but that's for another, another show perhaps. Right. So, uh, right. um, tell me what else stood out, uh, as one ish for you guys, uh, in this movie and about this character. Uh, one funny motif throughout the film. I don't know that this is a one ish thing necessarily, although I relate to this and I happen to be a one. There's several funny moments relating Steve and his dynamic around women and just being very uncomfortable around women. He doesn't know how to talk to women, even after he becomes Captain America and he's got the muscles and, you know, obviously he's very attractive and women are flirting with him. He just, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, there's the scene where uh, Howard Stark is showing him the shield options. He picks up the vibranium shield. And uh, this is shortly after a secretary sort of like cornered Steve and was kissing him before uh, Peggy Carter catches them in the act and Steve and Peggy sort of have a, a vibe going throughout the film. So Steve shows the shield to Peggy. He says, what do you think? And she picks up a gun and shoots him, <laughs> shoots the shield <laughs> and sets the, uh, sets the gun down and says, oh, it looks fine. And him and Howard look at each other very perplexed. Um, yeah. So just, I thought that was a funny, I don't know if there's anything one-ish about that, but just sort of, right. you know, maybe an uncomfortableness with his sexuality might be something in there. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and, you know, there's also this theme of devotion to Peggy that certainly is an ongoing theme throughout the Captain America and Avengers movies, right? Um, uh, we're going to talk about Civil War, and it's, you know, she dies during the making of that movie, right? And, you know, and again, without jumping ahead too much, you know, she's part of the closeout story of the Avengers movies. And I think that has to do, you know, here we're bringing in some elements of the transmitting subtype and the transmitting instinctual bias. Now, in a lot of the Enneagram literature, this is the big emphasis when it comes to this subtype, right? People usually call it the sexual or one-to-one -one subtype and really emphasize the relationship part of it. And that is certainly an element here, right? There is an aspect of this instinctual domain, which is about kind of this deep, passionate connection to the significant other. Right. And I think that's nicely on display here in this movie um, and all the all the movies that Captain America is in as well. So if I'm hearing you right, you see Steve as a transmitting one? Yes. Yes. And, you know, again, it would be easy to call him a navigating one or a social one because everybody in 
the Enneagram world seems to associate the, you know, the navigating one or the social one as the reformer, you know, the idealist, etc. That's really not my experience, right? In my experience, it's the transmitting one who has this vision of how people should be and how the world should be, right? With the navigating one, it's more about I, I don't want to break the social rules. I want to be aware of what the social rules are so I don't break them, but I'm not as interested in changing the world into my ideal image of it. And I think this is more of a, you know, he is driven by, you know, truth, justice in the American way, right? I mean, I think I'm stealing that from Superman, but it's certainly a theme for Captain America of, you know, we're the good guys, right? We are fighting for justice and, and you know, the, this is how the world should be. That's, that's how I see it. Responses to that discussion, argument with it? Yeah. I agree with all of those points. And at the same time as I was watching it, I saw a lot of navigating. In terms of, I mentioned, you know, he describes himself as a guy from Brooklyn, you know, identifying with a place. Uh, it comes up a bunch of times, especially in the early part of the movie, that he wants to join the army because he wants to do his part. I see a lot of that, like sensitivity to this is a movement, a mass movement of people, and other people are sacrificing their lives, and there's no reason that I shouldn't do the same as them. But see, again, and, and I'll say that's not always a navigating thing, though. Right. Uh, very often what I see in transmitters is this idealization of the social role. Right. Navigating is about understanding where I fit in. It's not about I have to satisfy this particular role. Right. I have to meet this role. It's about figuring it out and analyzing and then adapting. Right? Some people even call this kind of social adapting. I think that might be what they have in you know, Wisdom of the Enneagram, right? Uh, so it's not about adapting to the role. It's about exemplifying the role, right? And I think that's more of a transmitting thing. Anyway, it's, but it, it's, it's a nuanced thing, and I think that's one of the reasons why the, uh, the subtypes are often so misunderstood because uh, of some of those subtle distinctions. Let's see a couple of the things about the movie itself. For me, it was interesting, TJ, you mentioned that the director of it did the special effects for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because for me, I, I did not know that, but it was hard not to think about Raiders of the Lost Ark as I was watching this movie, right? Blatant and, uh, references. Many uh, yeah, of them. absolutely, right? Uh, references to plot points visually very similar as well. And for me, this movie very much had that 1940s movie serial kind of film feeling to it that Raiders was based on as well. And um, it felt more comic bookish. Okay, certainly, and when we get to Civil War, uh, for me, there was a big contrast there in visual style, for sure, right? And some other things that we'll talk about. But um, so this felt very much like a comic booky, cartoony, almost sort of movie, which uh, for me, I don't enjoy as much as I enjoy some of the more, it's hard to say, realistic movies when we're talking about superheroes. But, <laughs> you know, but that's how I'd put it. Uh, other thoughts on the movie as a piece of filmmaking? Just to build on that, I saw a number of Spielberg references. The opening scene, I thought, is almost a remake of the opening scene of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, mm. where people are arriving, where disappeared mm. planes from World War II mm. have shown mm. up again. And mm. some of the dialogue is even the same, and they even cast actors who have similar sounding voices oh, to the actors in that scene. The plane at the end, 
the, the movie climaxes on is very similar to the flying wing in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, the, the Red Skull makes a reference to the Fuhrer digging up trinkets in the desert. You know, it's all about trying to stop a Nazi right. from using a mystical right. religious artifact to conquer the world. And yes, as you said, this is a movie without moral ambiguity and nuance. Right. The Red Skull is very easy to see as, oh, that's the bad guy. Right. We got to go fight the bad guy. There's just no argument about that. Yes. Like this is a maniac with a red skull and a mystical power source who's even more evil than Hitler. Right. Well, we got to take him out. <laughs> like, <laughs> simple, moralistic. Yeah. You're right. Hit very common. Hitler's too soft, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Good. What else? Uh, TJ and Gracia, anything? Yeah, I agree with all that. I think the visual styles are very different. This film has a much more, the colors are more muted. You know, it feels like something that was shot in the 40s. Uh, it has just sort of like earth tones and it's it's darker uh, as opposed to Civil War, which we'll get to is much more modern, feels almost metallic. The colors are brighter and more saturated. So they just, yeah, even if you watch it with the sound off, they just have very different feels. Yes, yeah. In fact, um, it felt to me that every scene of the first Avenger was shot on a soundstage somewhere, even the scenes that were outdoors, right? I mean, I don't know if that's the case. I'd have to go back and look at it more carefully, but it had that feel to it. Uh, almost felt like a kind of a low budget film in some way. It wasn't. It cost a lot of money to make. I think they spent $170 million or something to, or $140, I had in my notes. Uh, yeah, cost $140 million to make and made $370 million in the box office. So it was not a cheap movie. Um, Although I did I, read that Chris Evans was only paid $300,000 for the role. So <laughs> they got him on a bargain. They did. Uh, he, he made up for it in Civil War because he got paid $15 million for that. Yeah, one. I think so, uh, I think his biceps alone got paid 300000 in Civil War. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah, so I, I, again, for me... Um, I, I think T.J. Dahl, you made this uh, point about it being a morally unambiguous movie, uh, which, you know, is one of the strengths of it, right? It is this feel-good, we know who the good guys are, we know who the bad guys are uh, kind of film. Um, and, you know, just personally, I often find those movies less interesting than I do, you know, uh, movies that are a little bit morally ambiguous. So, uh, but none of that here. It was a very, again, classic type one, black and white world, good versus evil, you know, and the good guys are going to win in the long run, you know, uh, kind of movie. Tom Condon in the Enneagram Movie and Video Guide, in his chapter on type one, talks about how movies with one lead characters have kind of fallen out of fashion. In the black and white era, there were a lot more movies where there would be a Randolph Scott or a Henry Fonda or the Charlton Heston or Gregory Peck in the lead role as somebody who had moral certainty and did the right thing and their antagonists were all external. The conflict was always external. Can this person do the right thing in spite of overwhelming odds? And yes, lo and behold, they do. And that's fallen out of fashion, which loops back to something that I was bringing up before we started recording which is, I don't think, I think Chris Evans does a wonderful job in the role. I don't think he's a one in real life. And if I can imagine if this movie had been made in the era of a young Gregory Peck, or if Gregory Peck were a young actor now playing the role, just how much that character would seethe with even more oneness. And I was trying to think, like, is there anybody from today's era that they could have cast? And I can't think of anyone. I honestly can't think of a single current actor who's younger than, say, 60, 
who I would confidently say is a one. Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting point, something worth exploring. Uh, I think that ones are old people by nature, uh, you know. <laughs> I always say I was born an old man. Uh, but, but I agree. It's, uh, you know, and I think part of it is, is that we certainly live in a more um, morally ambiguous world culturally than you know, that era that you're talking about, TJ, right? So it's not a surprise that that sort of black and white truth and justice character is not going to be embraced in popular culture as much as they used to be. And that's part of what makes Captain America so interesting in the Marvel universe is that he's a man out of time. Mm -hmm. So in mm -hmm. all of the movies and the comics that take place in present day, he's got the sensibilities of somebody who grew up in the World War II era with all that moral certainty. And now he's thrown into a world of shades of gray. and yeah has a hard time doing it. Or at least from our perspective, he has a hard time doing it because from his perspective, he's still a one, he still knows what's right, he still does it, but now it's a much more complex world. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, any other uh, thoughts or tidbits on the movie before we transition into Civil War, guys? I think that's about it. I mean, we don't meet him that much, but any thoughts on the type of Bucky? Good question. Um, yeah, and, and I don't, I don't have much of an answer, right? I mean, I think once he undergoes the uh, the treatment uh, by Hydra, it's kind of hard to determine a personality uh, type from him. I didn't get enough of a read on him, so I don't have an opinion. Uh, how about you, TJ? Joel? Did you see a, an Enneagram type? I think the kind of the Hydra brainwashed version of him is a symbol of a type three in that he is pure function. And his own thoughts, his own preferences are completely unconscious to himself. When he's sent on a mission, he doesn't even have control over himself. He just goes. And before that, in this movie, he is pretty charming. You know, he, yeah. he looks good in his soldier's yeah. uniform. He's very good at it. He's funny. He's capable. He's all of those things. So possibly a three, but yeah. definitely not a clear cut case. Yeah. I could see that. You know, we had a prior to the recording, we had a conversation about Colonel Phillips, the Tommy Lee Jones character, seemed kind of eight-ish in, in this movie, right? Uh, I wonder about Tommy Lee Jones in most of his roles in real life, whether he could be a one, but uh, that's, a, that's another conversation, I think. Uh, any thoughts on Peggy? One is my guess for her. Again, we don't meet her that much. We don't see that much of her, but she's dignified. She's restrained. She's willing to break the law with Steve to do the right thing. And the bully soldier who is the Tommy Lee Jones character's preference for the super soldier serum refers to as Queen Victoria, who is famously a one. So, And then she punches him in the face when he says that to her. <laughs> That's right. Ones tend not to take shit. She also had a kind of a Catherine Hepburn feel to her. Um, another, another famous one. Probably type one, right? So, um, yeah. All right, good. So, um, so yeah, the first Avenger, you know, good movie, you know, for me, uh, not one of my favorites in the, in the, in the series, but a, a, certainly a good movie and an interesting tale and a great, great depiction of the ideal of the Enneagram type one. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. 
For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. And now we transition into a movie that I, I've got to say I really, really enjoyed. And I remembered liking it when I saw it in the theater. I remember walking out saying, wow, that was a really good movie. And um, when I watched it again uh, twice for this podcast, I just liked it more each time. I mean, I just found things that I just, you know, just reveled in in this movie. And one of them was this sort of moral complexity that comes up through the movie this nuance and we'll get into this because what's interesting is that i found that some of the kind of stereotypes that people have about sevens and ones were turned on their head but in ways that are very consistent with what real ones and sevens are like okay so uh, i'm interested in talking about that but before we do that tj ingracia why don't you give us a, a an overview of Captain America Civil War. All right. And a little disclaimer here. This synopsis is going to be a little bit longer, a little bit more complex than I usually do. This is a very complex movie. Lots of new characters being introduced. There's lots of plot lines that you really had to have seen previous films to get. And there's lots of things that open to future films that you really have to see. But we're going to do our best There's a whole lot going on in this movie. (laughs) A whole lot going on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so the film opens in 1991, and we see James Bucky Barnes, who we talked about in the previous film, uh, Steve Rogers' childhood best friend. Uh, But in this role, in this particular scene, we see him as the brainwashed winter soldier. He attacks a car and steals a briefcase full of super soldier serum. Fast forward to the present day, which is about a year after the events of Age of Ultron, which we discussed in the last episode. The Avengers are preventing the theft of a biological weapon, but in the process, Wanda Maximoff accidentally uses her powers to destroy a building, killing some civilians and aid workers. Uh, Because of this, along with some of the destruction, you know, Avengers-related destruction basically around the world, you know, bad guys come, the Avengers come in and save the day, but they blow a whole lot of stuff up and destroy a whole lot of stuff in the process. So... The United Nations has decided to pass what they call the Sokovia Accords, which is all these countries agreeing the Avengers need to have some restraints put on them. We're going to have some oversight, some authority. They're not going to be able to act unilaterally anymore. This causes a split in the Avengers, uh, led by Tony Stark and Steve Rogers. On the Tony side, uh, Tony supports the Accords because he thinks the Avengers need to be put in check. He has a lot of personal guilt over his... Uh, the part he's played in creating Ultron and causing a lot of this destruction, and he thinks that they need to kind of be, you know, reined in a little bit. Steve Rogers does not support the Accords because he is distrustful of the government oversight, and he trusts, because he's a one, he trusts his own judgment. He thinks the Avengers should be free to act unilaterally. Uh, you know, they'll make the call when they should go in and when they shouldn't. So at the signing of the Accords at the UN, an explosion kills T'Chaka, king of Wakanda, and security footage indicates that Bucky is the perpetrator of this. So Steve Rogers, along with his friend Sam Wilson, uh, his superhero alias is the Falcon, 
They attempt to go intercept Barnes before the authorities do, but in the process, all of them get arrested. While they're under arrest, Bucky is activated back into his brainwashed winter soldier state by Helmut Zemo, who was pretending to be a psychologist interviewing Barnes. Chaos ensues, lots of fighting, lots more things blow up, but eventually uh, Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson escape with Bucky, who is unconscious, and Bucky reveals to them that Zemo wanted to know the location of the other winter soldiers who have been kept in cryogenic sleep for a few decades. So Steve Rogers decides that they need to try to stop Zemo before he gets there. He's joined uh, in this effort by Sam Wilson, Wanda Maximoff, Hawkeye, and Scott Lang, who is also known as Ant-Man. Okay, so Tony Stark decides he's going to stop them. And he is joined by Black Widow, Black Panther, uh, James Rhodey Rhodes, Vision, and a new surprise entry into the Marvel Universe, Spider-Man. So the two sides spar at a German airport. Uh, Some of the characters are trying to kill each other. Others are just sort of pulling their punches because they're fighting their friends on the other side. More things blow up, but eventually Steve and Bucky escape and they head after Zemo. Uh, The rest of Steve's rogue Avengers are arrested. So at the secret Siberian base, Steve and Bucky meet up with Tony Stark, who has intercepted them. But Tony offers a truce because he's getting the sense that the Avengers are being played here. So they discover that rather than activating all of these other Winter Soldiers, Zemo has actually killed all of them in their sleep. Zemo then plays security footage from the 1991 automobile attack that Bucky did in the opening scene, and it's revealed that the people in the car are Tony Stark's parents, who Bucky then murders in that attack. This enrages Tony because Steve knew about this and kept the information from him. Tony tries to kill Bucky. A massive fight breaks out. They all just absolutely beat the living hell out of each other. But eventually, Steve is able to overpower Tony. He uh, destroys his suit. He drops his Captain America shield and hobbles off into the sunset with Bucky. Black Panther prevents Zemo from killing himself after he reveals what his master plan was. And this is going to be very familiar uh, to the other Avengers films we've talked about. It was a bad guy who was attempting to defeat the Avengers, not by overpowering them, but by getting them to fight amongst themselves and destroy themselves. So in the end, sort of the Avengers are fractured. But in the final scene, Steve sends Tony a burner phone along with a letter saying that even though they disagree about a lot of things, uh, if he ever needs his help, he'll be there for him. Great job. A a very chock-full movie. Uh, Lots of twists and turns, lots and lots of characters coming in. But I think they did it in a way that didn't feel overwhelming or overly confusing or something. I think this was a really good piece of filmmaking, quite frankly. But to your point, TJ, about uh, trying to turn the Avengers against themselves, there was this line that Zemo said that a, uh, a something about a kingdom that is... Uh, knocked over by an external enemy can be built back up again, but a kingdom that falls apart from within cannot, is dead forever, right? And so that's the only way people think they can get the Avengers is to get them from the inside and have them defeat each other. So um, I really liked this movie. But, you know, before I go on, TJ Daw, thoughts on Civil War? Fabulous bit of filmmaking. Uh, So something to mention is... The seven-year-old kid that's still alive inside me 
was jumping up and down in so many moments in this movie. There were some incredible fight scenes, incredible chase scenes that are viscerally thrilling. The adrenaline is pumping through my body, which is exactly what this movie wants. And yet it still examines moral complexity. And to square that circle is no small accomplishment while making a popcorn movie, a popular summer blockbuster. Yeah. For me, this movie felt almost more like a Daniel Craig era James Bond movie or a Mission Impossible or a Bourne movie than it did a comic book movie, right? In the sense that, I mean, obviously none of those movies are realistic in any sense of the term, but it had the same sort of visual look. It had the same, it felt more real, right? You, uh, it, it wasn't so CGI laden, although I'm sure the CGI budget on this was, you know, in the, you know, in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, but it felt like, you know, they weren't filming it on a soundstage, uh, much like you see in some of those other movies. Uh, don't quite feel that way. Um, and I agree the fight scenes were, you know, the, the action scenes were just thrilling. Um, and more so than I think in, in most of the other movies that I can recall, uh, particularly the scene at the airport where the two teams of Avengers uh, are battling each other. And, uh, you know, as TJ pointed out, some of them are really trying to get each other and others are just kind of pretending to punch at each other or, you know, taking it light uh, because they're friends, particularly with Black Widow and... Um, uh, Hawkeye. And Hawkeye, thank you. And, uh, and then Wanda comes along and zaps uh, 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 Black Widow because, you know, as she turns to, to Clint and says, you were pulling your punches, right? And, uh, um, and there was also that joy, particularly through the eyes of, I think, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, of, wow, man, this is fun. I'm getting to fight these guys. You got a steel arm? That is so cool, you know? I mean, they were just, you know, they were kind of marveling at each other's skills and gifts. And, and at one point, one of them said, you know, everybody's got a gimmick these days, right? So, so there was this self-awareness in that scene and this, this sort of self-referencing that for me didn't take away at all from the thrill of it, right? It didn't, you know, kind of diminish the excitement in my view, but enhanced it, in fact. So it made me feel like that seven-year-old kid, you know, inside of TJ. Uh, so, so. Yeah, I think, I think that fight scene at the airport is a perfect example of how Marvel really nails there's some serious elements and some great action and some really funny humor. And it's like second after second, it's just back and forth, back and forth. Yes. They have a really good way of just making it funny, but it's not comical necessarily. And Marvel really nails that. They did. And that's easy to screw up. If you watch the Star Wars prequels, if you watch any of the DC comic book movies, you can see just how easy it is We don't to... speak of the Star Wars prequels around here. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're a powerful negative example where the yes. humor just seems forced. Yes. And and it's, it's like somebody's prodding you to have fun. And it's just, it's not. Stop bothering me. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really, I mean, I hate to say it's just world-class entertainment and storytelling, you know, I mean, really, really well done. And, uh, it almost seemed as if the, the characters, you know, the actors and were having fun as well. So, uh, you know, but again, while still taking it very seriously. And so let's turn to the more serious elements of this because it is a serious movie that tackles some serious issues 
Okay. I was reading, um, uh, you know, about the movie and the directors, the, um, the two brothers, Anthony and Joe Russo. Yeah. The Russo brothers. Um, one of them was saying that this movie is about betrayal and the um, impact of that. And he said that it's one of the most human of emotions of feeling betrayed. And I think that captures this movie. This felt to me like the most human of the Marvel movies for that very reason. They felt like real human characters here. Thoughts on that, guys? Yeah, I definitely agree. I'd say especially in the scene where uh, Tony Stark, Steve Rogers, and Bucky are all fighting at the very end. You know, they've all got these superpowers, but it just feels like three friends who all love each other and hate each other at the same time. And it's like, they're not literally crying, but there's just so many mixed emotions and you can feel the betrayal and the anger and the hurt, but also somehow the love sort of all mixed in. You know, Steve Rogers has a chance. He could kill Tony. He's disabled his suit. He lifts his shield yeah. above his head, but rather than smashing his face in, he disables his chest piece to like knock him out. It's his way of saying, I still love you, but yeah. you're done. Stay down. Right. And then Tony in response curses him saying, you don't deserve that shield. My dad made that shield. He knows exactly how to wound a one saying you're absolving your friend of murdering my parents. And you know, that's not right. And Steve hears him and sheds his shield which is quite the moment. That's his emblem. That's his iconic weapon. That's what he uses both offensively and defensively. It's an icon of who he is as a character, as a hero. And he realizes that he doesn't have the perfect moral high ground and he drops it. Yeah. So this is, it gets us into this, this moral ambiguity of this movie and, and, and ambiguity is not quite the right word. It's moral complexity. Okay, ethical complexity, because that's what this movie is about. It's about what are the responsibilities of those in power? Uh, how do we act with that power in a responsible way? Uh, there was, you know, as you guys pointed out, um, you know, what starts this movie off is the actions of the Avengers leading to the unnecessary or perhaps not unnecessary, but the accidental death of innocent people. And there's that scene where they play the montage of all these different cities being attacked, where the, you know, the, the Avengers have had these battles. And in most of the movies, we don't think about this when this great giant worm spaceship comes out of the sky and devastates all these buildings. We don't think about the people in those buildings in a lot of these kind of, you know, popcorn movies, but here they're facing this head on right? Wait, there are people in those buildings, you know, and those people are dying. And could we have done something different um, to make sure those people didn't die? Did we cause that? And there's even the scene where Vision kind of does the formula, right? Where he says, well, there is a correlation between more and more people <laughs> revealing themselves as, you know, superheroes, right? The more, the more superheroes we have, the more people die. Uh, the, and, and says that, you know, our power causes people to feel challenged. Challenge leads to violence and violence leads to death. So this is what's at the heart of this is, you know, how do you do good? How do you follow your conscience? And what are the limitations on our ability to make decisions regarding these things? And how do we deal with the consequences of this? Uh, thoughts on that, guys? There's several scenes where the Avengers are all together and they're discussing and arguing what to do about these Sokovia Accords. Should they sign? Should they not sign? And 
this last time I watched it, I was really struck by how nobody makes a bad argument. It's like both sides are right. They they do need to have some oversight. They need to rein it in some, but they also they're trying to do good and they need to be autonomous and be able to act to save people if they need to. And so it's interesting contrasting this with Captain America, the first Avenger, where there is right. no moral complexity at all. Right. It's, it's right. completely black and white. Yeah. Uh, Civil War, it's just, it's a big swamp of gray. Yeah. Well, the Avengers also live in the Marvel universe, which includes Loki and Thanos. Like our world has no equivalent to those threats. And there's this YouTube news comedian that I love called Cody Johnston, who has a show called Some More News. It's independently funded. It's hilarious. And he's got two separate episodes, the title of which is some, some variation on the existential hell of living in the Marvel Universe, where he does it as if he actually lives in the Marvel Universe and is a newscaster and is trying to describe what the average person would understand about these world-shaking events that are happening, because of course the information that we get would be incomplete. And the notion that life would continue as it has with the introduction of Norse <laughs> gods or Tony Stark <laughs> discovering a new element that then unleashes clean, renewable energy and that there could be somebody coming out of cryogenic sleep after 70 years, that there is a tesseract, that there are extraterrestrials that are real. It's everything would change. Politics would change. Science would change. Industry would change. Religion would change. Everything would change. Things wouldn't just go on as normal, including things like how do we deal with superpowered individuals? How do we deal with extraterrestrials? What do we do about that? And another thing that he said in a different episode is that the, the glut of superhero movies that have been happening in the last 20 years are, he believes, the first domino that started that off was September 11th. And that these movies address the existential feeling in American audiences of what is it like when there's an attack on American soil, when a building gets devastated, when an iconic American city suddenly becomes a battlefield. And in the case of the Avengers, in some cases, it's Loki causing it or Thanos. But in the case of Age of Ultron, Ultron was created by Tony Stark. So he is responsible for that. So where's the accountability? And there really isn't any. So to look at the complexity of this opens up a massive can of worms of like, how would this actually work? Whereas in the world of comics, it's very simple. There is good and there is bad. And it's very easy to tell who is who. And what do you do when you actually can't tell that anymore? And what do you do with somebody like Bucky, who is an assassin, who was completely brainwashed? So is he responsible for his kills or is he not? How do you deal with that? And even Bucky himself doesn't understand. And the movie's final moment, which happens in a post credit scene, is him willingly going into cryogenic sleep until they can figure out how to get his programming out of him so that he can't just be manipulated and kill again. Right. Yeah, great point. So I, I couldn't help but see footage from 9-11 in some of the scenes of the aftermath explosions, the explosion aftermath in Civil War, right? I mean, and the filmmakers had to be thinking about that as they put this together, right? I mean, it was just too close, right? Uh, you know, people running from billowing smoke, uh, you know, paper, you know, falling like confetti and, and, and so forth. Uh, and it almost made me wonder, you know, I mean, I, I, I think the movie was released in 2014, something sometime around then, uh, 16. Okay. It, it almost felt like 
it could have been made in 2005 when those things were still such hot button issues um, here in the States. So um, very much a 9-11 uh, connection from that perspective. What also caught my attention is, so here we have the character of um, Captain America, who clearly an Enneagram type one, as we've established, you know, well, who is not following the rules, right? Who thinks that his own internal moral compass is superior to that of others. And he even makes the comment as they establish this commission or this regulatory body to oversee the Avengers, he said, I don't trust their judgment as much as I trust my own or something to that effect, right? So he's basically saying, you know, well, you have your rules and I have mine, okay? And mine are, I, you know, mine are better than yours, or I trust my own judgment more than I trust yours. And I think to our earlier point, that's one of the distinctions between the navigating one and the transmitting one, a navigating one would be much more likely to submit to oversight, right? Because it, it is about, you know, fitting in and following the expectations of others uh, much more likely than the transmitting one who will come out and say, I hear what you're saying, but you don't get it. You don't have the moral, ethical insights that I do. Okay, or the perception that I have. So it's something where it kind of gets um, him into trouble in a way. And to, and to TJ and Gracia's earlier point, both sides were making really good arguments. You know, I mean, I was sitting there watching this and thinking, I'm happy I don't have to decide. Okay, because it would, you know, it's a tough choice here, right? To either say, no, there is this other thing that's right versus this other thing that's right and which one do we follow yeah so there's the scene uh at peggy's funeral that we referenced earlier where peggy's niece sharon who steve sort of has this sort of flirty sort of professional relationship with and in the eulogy that she's giving she quotes peggy and here i'm just going to read the quote peggy said this compromise where you can where you can't don't even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say, no, you move. Now, that sounds very one-ish, right? I've got the truth. This is right. You move. I hate that quote. Man, it's, <laughs> it, I have like a righteous fury in me when I hear that because that is so dangerous. And there's actually... During one of the arguments where they're talking about the accord, Steve says, if we're not taking responsibility for our actions, this document just shifts the blame. And Rhodey says to Steve, Steve, that is dangerously arrogant. And I think that quote from that eulogy is dangerously arrogant. If the whole world is telling you that something is wrong is right or right is wrong, maybe you should listen to the preponderance of wisdom. Maybe you're the one who's wrong. So I thought that's it's very interesting that scene is meant to sort of reinforce Steve standing in the position that he has. Yes. But I think that adds to that moral ambiguity where it's like, no, Steve, maybe you should listen to your friends and, and take right. a step back. Right. And, um, and, and TJ Doe, I'm sure you have something to say, but I just want to refer back to um, the first Avenger when Red Skull says to Steve Rogers or Captain America, 
arrogance is not, you know, it's not a trait restricted to Americans or something like that, but you do it better than anybody I've ever met, right? And, and this is the danger of this, you know, sort of moral certainty that ones can fall into, right? Because a lot of people who do damage in the world in the name of righteousness are kind of coming from a one-ish place, right? Uh, you know, so as with all the types, we see these high parts and these low parts, and this is a good example of the potential low part of the type one. The other thing that was kind of turned on its head for me here, again, but in a realistic way, is that the one who wanted to follow the rules was the seven, right? And everybody says, oh, sevens break the rules, they don't follow the rules, you know, all this sort of stuff. It's not my experience of sevens. Okay, most sevens, even though they have this sort of rebellious streak, deep down inside, they really do want to be the good little boy or girl and make other people happy and kind of follow the rules. So here we have um, Tony Stark in this case being the one who says, you know what, we need to have other people put limits on us. We need to have other people sort of rein us in because... I don't know that we're capable of doing it ourselves. So I just found it really interesting there that this very clear and consistent type 7 character was almost taking the position of what we would often think the one position would be. Yeah, I thought this film really showed a new level of Tony sort of getting in touch with his, not his dark side, but like really feeling the pain. I mean, you can tell, especially in the beginning, he's really in pain. First of all, in the scene where he has the, the glasses on, where he uh, relives the scene of the last time that he met his parents before they died, which then obviously connects to the end of the film because Bucky killed his parents. And then he has the meeting with the woman who tells him about her son that was killed in Sokovia. And I don't know, you can just feel that he's really struggling and, and, and really feeling that pain. And Seven has that connection to one. And any Seven that I have ever known has a strong idealistic streak in them might not be what they lead with. It might not be one of the first words people use to describe them, but sevens really do want the world to be a better place. They want freedom. They want fun. They want options, not just for themselves, but for everyone. And Tony really is confronted with the fact that his own actions, although they have brought that in some ways, have brought suffering and death and destruction for many. And what do I do with that? The old Tony would have distracted himself out of it continued to have more fun, continued to have sex with more supermodels, bought more prize cars. But that's a side of himself that he's left behind. And he's trying to grow and he's trying to be better. So yeah, we're seeing a much more three-dimensional seven with Tony yeah. in this movie. And then that just increases in the following Avengers movies. Yeah, for sure. So for me, one of the highlights of this movie was just the question of what do you do when it's a 50-50 argument, right? I mean, it's, you know, there's no clear right or wrong. Both sides have good points. How do we then function? And unfortunately, you know, what we saw in that movie was, well, it leads to a civil war, okay? And You just you know, beat the hell out of each other. Yeah, <laughs> you know? And, and frankly, uh, here in the United States, it feels like we're going through very similar things, right? Where there are... I don't want to say good people on both sides based on the uh, the, the history of that statement, right? But, uh, you know, it, 
but it is possible for good people to see things in different ways and hopefully do so without going to war with each other you know um, yeah maybe it's not coincidental that the film came out in 2016 and the poster is very clearly there's sort of a red hue and a blue hue on the the character uh, split on both sides so could be some illusions there yeah yeah very interesting um so um again we talked about you know just the the thrill of this movie too and that's the beauty of it right it's these asking these morally complex questions in you know on a roller coaster right and just in, in the midst of so much fun uh, i loved the introduction of spider-man there's a whole lot of back story about the legality of all that and the negotiations that went on and ownership rights etc etc on that um but uh, so this is the tom holland version of uh, spider-man now was this his first appearance as spider-man i believe it was okay you're both nodding your heads right so um yeah so and uh and i thought it was really good i think he's great in that role i thought he brought such a a a, a youthful enthusiasm and wonderment to the role that was really cool uh he was kind of the stand-in for the the audience of wow man that's you know that's you know that, that's tony stark you know or you got a steel arm or you know that was cool thoughts on uh spider-man's uh, or peter parker's enneagram type in this movie uh navigating six He's a jittery, nervous over-talker. I've known a lot of navigating sixes <laughs> in my life that think out loud and their minds are going a million miles an hour and they're anticipating what you're going to say. So they're apologizing for what you might've misinterpreted of what you haven't quite said yet. So he does a lot of that. Uh, he's got a strong sense of responsibility. That's not unique to this iteration of Spider-Man. That's been part of the character's DNA from the very first issue. With great power comes great responsibility. He doesn't say that phrase in this movie, but that's a big part of what motivates him. At one point, Tony Stark blatantly asks him why he does what he does. And his answer, he says, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. Yeah. Strong sense of duty and responsibility. So that's a really telling point for me. First of all, I, I would agree with that assessment. Now, I do think that each of the Spider-Man actors brought a different Enneagram type to the character, right? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, that, that, that quote that you just referenced, TJ, is a very sixish sort of thing, right? It's my job to look out for the things that could go wrong. It's my job to be prepared for the things that could go wrong. And it's my fault if they do go wrong. Right? This is one of the real driving forces in the psyche of a six. It's, this, it's why they're so vigilant. It's why they're so hypervigilant at times. We, often, we also saw a lot of kind of back and forthing in the thought process of Peter Parker here, right? He was talking about, you know, wanting to play football, but you know, I wasn't good enough before this happened to me, so why should I now? And, you know, again, these complexities of, um, you know, right and wrong, but in a way that seemed to be bouncing back and forth on both sides, whereas the characters, as they were discussing the moral complexity of the situation, were very firm in their positions, right? No, we need oversight. No, our judgment is better. Whereas Peter Parker was kind of bouncing back and forth. Okay. He also made the comment to, uh, I forget which, to, to it might have been to uh, the, the Falcon. Uh, he said, look, I, I only have one job here, and that's to impress uh, Mr. Stark. 
right? And again, a very sixish thing. And that for me is often a demonstration of the sixes connection to three. I have to prove my value because that ensures my security and my safety, right? So if people see me doing a good job, I won't get, you know, voted off the island kind of thing. So uh, very much, a, a, I, I think, a navigating six too as well. And I'm trying to impress the authority figure. Strong yes. reference to authority. He all, yes. he says the words Mr. Stark a lot. Yes. In this movie yes. and in the and in his own movies. So uh, so we've talked about Spider Man. We've talked about Tony Stark. We've talked about Captain America. Any other good uh, enneagram type examples in this movie? I thought Ant Man was a pretty good seven. Mm. He's okay. he's having fun. He's cracking jokes. He's I mean Paul Rudd is a very funny actor, and I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he was given license to ad lib or to embellish the lines he was given. But you know, when he, when we first meet him, he's shaking Captain America's hand and then says, I'm shaking your hand too long. This is awesome. <laughs> and then when he goes really small and gets inside Tony Stark's armor, he starts messing with him and cracking jokes as he's doing it and saying, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to have to take this into the shop. And Iron Man says, who's speaking? He says, it's your conscience. We don't talk a lot these days. <laughs> and then he turns huge. He turns into the giant version of himself and starts laughing. Whoa, ho, ho, ho. He's having fun doing this. And when he's eventually felled, he goes back to his regular human size, takes off his mask, and then just says, does anyone have any orange slices? <laughs> like, like he's yeah, playing a community that? soccer what, game. Uh, what, was, what was the orange slices reference? I didn't get that. Uh, That's what they give kids after soccer games. Oh, is that so? Okay. Like he was treating it like it was just, or like <laughs> he was saying the line as if it was this ridiculous low stake situation as opposed to what it really was. He was gotcha. undercutting it. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. All right. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. So, and and I think, uh, so I, I saw the first Ant-Man in the theaters, but I haven't watched it since then. And I don't think I saw the second one. So I don't know the character that well. Seven feels kind of right, but more of a navigating seven than a transmitting seven, like Tony Stark, right? I mean, there was this sort of almost a, a slight nine-ish feel uh, to his sevenness, right? Which I think, you know, which I often see in the navigating seven. It's not the joke a minute, uh, you know, Robin Williams version of the seven that we often think about. So who else? Anybody else? Zemo. Five is my guess. He's meticulous. He's persistent. He's dispassionate, subtle, intelligent, strategic, and observant. And anonymous. He doesn't do any villain grandstanding. He kills those other super soldiers silently and quietly, which is very reminiscent to the scene in 2001 when Hal kills the cryogenically sleeping other astronauts. It's the most subtle and bloodless triple murder in cinematic history. And until this one, when he kills five or six of them, uh, when he comes face to face with Cap, he has this great line saying, I've thought about nothing else for over a year. I've studied you, followed you. But now that you're standing here, I just realize there's a bit of green in the blue of your eyes. How nice to find a flaw. And then, so he's got that attention to detail. He's not strong. He doesn't he can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone in a fight, but he's incredibly intelligent and he is successful. You know, he says that line that you mentioned earlier about an empire that crumbles from within, that's dead forever. And he's meticulous in figuring out a way to make that happen. And that brings back the theme of moral ambiguity because when somebody has super strength and has autonomy to just do what they think is right, there's always the possibility that they can be deceived and in the world of comic books, they can be mind controlled. 
And then what do you do? That happens in Superman comics a lot. Superman is superior in every single way except the fact that he is incredibly susceptible to hypnosis or mind control. And then villains can get him to do all kinds of horrific things. In this movie, the deception does fool everybody but Cap, which kind of emphasizes that Cap was right in standing by his guns, you know, that he was, he should trust himself and his instincts. But when it shows how easy it is to manipulate a group as strong, as powerful as the Avengers with no accountability, it shows just what chaos can ensue. The interesting question is, um, you know, with any sort of morally complex issue, you know, the outcome does not determine the validity of the premise necessarily, right? Because had you followed the other premises, may some other outcome, some better outcome have occurred, you know, et cetera, right? You know, so again, for me, it's, um, I, I, I love the, um, the question raising to this and the exploration of it all. So, um, you know, and again, I, I almost feel like we're making too much out of a, you know, comic book movie. Um, I will say this, even though I'm not a big comic book person, most of the better of the comic books and the movies based on them are asking some sort of moral question right at their heart, some sort of ethical question, uh, some sort of question about what is the right way to live. And uh, those questions are amplified when people have, you know, superpowers in some sort of way. So uh, the well done movies are always really interesting in this perspective. Uh, any closing thoughts, guys? Any uh, final statements on the two Captain America movies we talked about today? It's a little outside of the movies, but I want to recommend the comic books of Captain America written by Ed Brubaker, one of the best writers in the medium. He's written other superheroes. He's also written crime fiction comics in his own, just original creations. I have never read anything by him that I have not been tremendously impressed with. And he came up with the character of the Winter Soldier. He devised a lot of the storylines that were then brought right into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he did, I think, a five or six or even longer year run on Captain America. And he made the character tremendously nuanced and interesting. So if anyone's interested in reading Cap in the comics, just look for the name Ed Brubaker as the writer. Great. Thanks. All right. And uh, TJ Gracia, any closing thoughts? I was just glad I got to watch uh, Cap on screen for a couple of movies. Uh, my favorite moment from Civil War and, and one of my favorite moments from the entire Marvel franchise is when Steve finally kisses Sharon after they escape and the, she's giving him back all of their superhero suits. They've kind of had this on again, off again, flirty thing going on. They finally kiss and Steve looks over at Bucky and Sam, who both sort of like nod and give him this attaboy kind of look. And I, uh, you know, sometimes ones need to just take a little break, have a little fun. Uh, Cap doesn't have a lot of fun and enjoyment in his life. So that was a, a nice moment of levity for him. Yeah. For me, I, I love that scene so much. So just to, to, you know, for the, to remind the viewer that, uh, they, they go to meet with her to get his, uh, Captain America gear back. He is with the Falcon and, uh, Bucky in a little beat up old Volkswagen Beetle. And Bucky is sitting in the back seat, and it's my favorite scene where they flash to them, and Bucky is in the back seat, and he says to the Falcon, "Can you move your seat up, please?" 
and the falcon just says no and then, and then they cut away and then they cut back and you see bucky just sliding over a little bit to the middle of the back seat so he has more room and for me again that was just something so human right and it was funny but it wasn't one of these cutaway jokes you know that are de rigueur in these sort of movies it was just a really human moment that would happen between two people and you know so for me my big takeaway from the civil war is that um of the marvel movies that we've watched so far it was the most truly human movie and so far is the one i've enjoyed the most i have to say so all right guys well as always tj and tj thank you for uh, uh being here on this podcast uh looking forward to our next one uh tell the listeners what uh, movies we're going to be talking about next time. It's going to be Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War. All right. Okay, great. So I know I loved Black Panther. I'm looking forward to watching that one again. Uh, Black Panther is a little bit in Civil War, not enough for my uh, taste. So um, looking forward to that. Watching those movies, that conversation. Guys, um, sit back, eat some popcorn, enjoy the show, as we say. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 